Rigo Garcia is back. If you haven't yet watched the first interview I did with Rigo, please go watch it. It is full of information and it will set some of the context for today. Last time, Rigo, we talked about the four pillars of a successful drug diversion prevention and monitoring program. And today I wanna jump right in and start to talk about the changing of culture. So welcome back, Rigo, and let's talk culture. Thank you so much, Terry. It's great to be back and looking forward to it. This is really, I think, one of probably the most pivotal things in changing the overall way we treat, identify, and, and be able to help our uh, providers who are looking for some help or needing some help. Yeah, and I suspect that the culture, the shift in culture really can only come after you've implemented those four pillars, or they at least go hand in hand with those four pillars. Yeah. It's a comprehensive. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that we found is really interesting is, is, is Claudia and I have um, a presentation. Claudia was my wife who was there with me the entire time when I was going through my issues as an as a impaired provider, um, you know, several years ago, almost 11 years ago now. So we've fashioned our story. We talk about our experience and we talk about what we find with diversion and impaired providers. And we've been very fortunate to go across the country and talk about uh, Catch Me If You Can, the impaired provider. One of the things we do during that presentation, Terry, is, is very eye-opening and it's incredibly consistent. Maybe the most consistent part of our whole uh, presentation, what we do. We ask the audience members, think about the organization that you work at. Think about the institution that you work in. Think about your supervisor. Think about what they've done with people that they've caught before. If you had a problem with drugs or alcohol, if you were shooting up in the bathroom right before you came to this meeting, if you were still hung over from your night before of drinking, how many of you in this audience would raise your hand right now, leave your obligations as a healthcare provider, go to your supervisor and say, I'm an addict, I need some help. I'm an alcoholic, I need some help. I'm struggling for substance use or mental health, I need some help. How many of you in the audience right now would do that? To no surprise, that's the answer, exactly. <laughs> Maybe one or two that are sitting right next to the boss will say, I want for help. But, uh, by and large, the 98, 99% yeah. of people will say no. Then we ask them another question. Look at the person you're sitting next to. Uh, you, you, that's your friend. That's your coworker. If you walked in and you saw them with a needle in their arm or if you saw them stumbling and impaired, how many of you would say, uh, supervisor, boss, administration, my friend needs some help. Let's get him the help that he needs. And that's surprising as well. It's about 40%. Okay. For almost half of the audience will consistently say, I'm not going to help myself, but I'll help this person out over there. So it surprises me on both sides. It surprises me that that number is not higher. And it surprises me that they had the insight of, I'm not going to put myself in the system because of the effects it will have on my career and my license and my freedom. But I'm going to put him through the system because I know it's important to save their life. So uh, it's a very eye-opening thing. And that all surrounds culture. Why is it that some facilities will have a 50, 60, 70% self-report rate? That means out of everyone they catch at the hospital, 50% of them, they're catching them because they're raising their hand saying, I need some help. What do I do? If you look at the national standards and the national averages for people that are entering a treatment center, 96% of people that enter a treatment center do so under some sort of duress. They're going to get divorced or they go to treatment. They're going to go to jail or they go to treatment. They got caught diverting and they're never going to practice again or they go to treatment. Uh, they overdose in the operating room or in the bathroom 
or they go to treatment or so they have to go to treatment. So it's some kind of push. It's some kind of force. Uh, uh, the, the converse way of saying that is three to 4% of people will say, I'm in trouble. I'm an addict. I need some help. What do I need to do next? So we have to take that 3%, that 4%, and we have to get them up to places like the Cleveland Clinic, Northwestern Hospital, some of the facilities that we've been through when we do this comprehensive uh, evaluation and program where those numbers are not 3 or 4%. They're 30 40 50 60% of the people they're catching are they're, they're being caught because they're coming to them saying, I need some help. And without a doubt, that revolves around the culture of the hospital. How do you how do you even begin to get that culture in place? Sure. Yeah, that's that's um, that's always a very tricky place to start, uh, and that's what we tell them. You just got to start with the first one because what we're trying to undo is the historical way they have done things before. And hey, we're here. The hospital administrator's voice here. Uh, we're here to protect the public. We have a business. We have federal, state, local reporting requirements. Sometimes that includes the DEA. We have to do these things. So I really like you, but we have to protect our public. We have to protect our institution and we have to report you. So that means DEA, investigation, licensing, maybe not working to get all of those things. So what that does is it sets the precedence for everyone else who's coming after them. Hey, I saw what they did to Jimmy. There's no way I'm going to ask for help. I saw how bad they were in handcuffs out the door. Really? I, there's no way I'm going to ask for help. So we have to change that first case. We have to take that first case and make them an example. Hospitals will say, well, how do I do that? And I say, I have a thousand healthcare providers that are looking for a job. Take in one of those people in and make them your voice. Make them your, your, your spokesperson for your facility. Bring them in embrace them, re-answer them, give them a position. Maybe they sit on your diversion response team. Maybe they're your wellness coordinator, uh, but put them forward facing so that they can pass on the message to all the other employees. Hey, they took care of me and I had an addiction. If you need help, reach out to me and this is how we're gonna do it. All of the stuff that's really easy is, is behind the curtains. What do we do? How do we do it? So how do we get them into treatment? How do we uh, re-enter them into the professions? That's really just kind of plug and play. But the, that first step of convincing your employees, it's going to have to be by um, kind of a show and tell, showing those employees that, hey, we there's, there's a twofold approach that we're going to use here at our facility. We're putting a lot of time and resources and energies into finding diversions and protecting our patient population. However, if you ask for help, we also want to protect our employees. But make no mistake about it, we're going to find it. We're going to look really hard and we're going to turn over every summer. We're going to find it. And if we find it, it's going to go south for you very well. But if you ask for help, this is how you get the help. We give you an FMLA. We have a treatment center set up that we can get you the help that you need. We'll bring you back in a safe environment. Maybe it's not patient-centric. Maybe it's not access to medications, but we'll make sure that you want the help that you get the help that you need. Changing the culture of the hospital has another advantage on it, and it promotes this loyalty to the hospital systems that I've never seen. So I'll give you my example. I applied to about nine places after I got out of treatment. Right? I'm an opioid addicted anesthesia provider. Hey, trust me, I'm good. Hire me. No. <laughs> yeah. go, no. go into uh, psychology or psychiatry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, pick something else. Lowe's is hiring right now. Try yeah. that. 
Uh, and it was no, no, no. So I ended up working at this place that was about an hour and 15 minutes away, one way drive from my house. I passed about 10 hospitals on the way there. And I stayed there after I got back. I stayed there for the next seven years. And during the course of those seven years, I had more sobriety. I proved myself. I passed all of my requirements. I paid all my restitution. Then I had those hospital systems coming back to me and saying, hey, you're from the area. We knew about you before. Come on, we have a position for you. And because of the loyalty they gave me the chance, I finished my career in anesthesia at that hospital, little community hospital, two operating rooms, an hour and 15 minutes away from my house one way. And I stayed there the entire time because of that undying loyalty. Now we talked about, or I mentioned earlier, uh, hey, get yourself a show pony and put them out there at the hospital. Let them know that this is our guy. Yeah. I became that guy for that community hospital. So my story was out there. I was the wellness coordinator. So if you had a problem with drugs or alcohol, everybody knew, go talk to Rigo. So I was the intermediary between administration and the hospital staff. And Terry, you would not be surprised. Little hospital, little town, 2,500 people. How many of those healthcare providers came right up to me and said, so-and-so needs some help. I had three people in the course of six years came up to me directly saying, listen, I know you're going to get it. I've been diverting from the hospital. I think I'm going to get caught. I know I need help. What do I do next? Every single one of them, three of them came up to me directly and at least a half dozen were being reported to me by somebody else. And, um, you know, almost 10 people in the six years or seven years that I was there, we were able to help because the whole culture was changed. And when they took a little time off of work and they came back, everybody knew why, but they embraced them with open arms. They didn't put them in the corner and say, we're not going to hire you again. So the culture at this little hospital is so, so profound that almost everyone that they catch diverting is raising their hand and asking for help. Interesting. Yeah. When you talk about changing the culture and you have to have one example, I didn't think of the show pony. I thought more of, okay, we got to wait till we catch somebody and then make an example, which of course it's a private thing. It's not like you can make an example of somebody when you're trying to keep it quiet. So I'm, I'm glad you went into a little bit more detail. I didn't think about the hire somebody that has been through that and make them your advocate. That's right. Um, and yeah. if you look at it just kind of on the surface, um, so you, you have general population, you say about 10 to 15% of them would meet the DSM-5 criteria for a substance use disorder, about 10 to 15%. If you follow, and now you're, you're the addict, you're the impaired professional, you do these three steps. You go through a detox program, you get into a health care professionals program that specializes in treating healthcare professionals. Because remember, we are the equivalent of the alcoholic bartender. We are the yeah. opioid addicted anesthesia provider or nurse. So right. high access to these medications. And you enter into a monitoring program that can hold you accountable. Almost every state has a monitoring program that can do this. So if the healthcare provider does those three things, their one-year sobriety rate is the same as a general sobriety rate that you would take out of the public. So in other words, if you hire somebody who's been through the program after one year and you hire somebody randomly off the street, their chances of becoming an addict are the exact same, pretty close to the same. The longer you yeah. keep that uh, healthcare provider engaged in that regimen, so you continue to monitor them, their three-year recovery rate is 90%. Their five-year recovery rate is 95%. So they become a better candidate in terms of risk factors to the hospital in terms of diversion. So what we tell them is this, listen, 
I'll give you an example, a personal example. Uh, I got back to work in the facility and there was some uh, midazolam that was missing from, from the operating room. Instantly, my anxiety goes you know, sky high because I'm like, I am the, I'm the show pony. <laughs> Everybody knows where I was at. They're all going to look at me. So I called my sponsor real quick and they're like, hey, you know, what am I going to do? I was only back to this practice for about six months. I was out of treatment for a year and a half now. They're all going to look at me. And my sponsor just started laughing and he said, you're the easiest one. You're the only one being tested by the state. You're the only one that had uh, a year and a half of drug screen tests. You're the only one. You're the safest person for them to hire right now. So you've been clean for that long. So it's I, probably not you because they know they what know. your status is. I'm the only one that has documented sobriety the entire year and a half. And I just took a test two days ago with the state of Indiana. So I'm the only one. So I marched back in there and I said, I volunteer to do any kind of drug test that you would like me to do. So it's, it's that kind of changing that mindset is that hiring somebody is, is, uh, that's been in recovery has this incredible ripple effect for the culture of the hospital that we are a recovery-friendly institution and you don't have to be perfect to work here. You just have to tell us you need some help because we have to find those threats to our patient population. We have to find those threats to our institution. But if you come to us and say, hey, I'm struggling with whatever, we are going to help because we care that much about you. Those success rates are pretty incredible. Like I would think of it, like you said, putting the bartender back in the bar, you know, you put the, the nurse or the anesthesiologist back next to that automated dispensing machine with the access, you know, it seems so risky. Like, why would you do that? Sure. So those success rates are, are pretty incredible. That's an educational piece for hospital administration, I think, to recognize, because I don't think that's intuitive. It absolutely is not. I mean, I was, uh, well, my wife was with me the entire journey and, and I checked off all the boxes and it was a year later. I was on the medication I needed to be on. I was, took the time off work that I needed to be off of. I went to the program I needed to be and I was being monitored the way I needed to be. Uh, and I'm going back to work after about uh, almost a year of being out of anesthesia. And my wife's like, oh, I don't know if this is a good idea. You know, you're going right back. So even sure. with somebody who's educated and saw the whole process, it is um, counterintuitive to what you think you should be able to do. Uh, but uh, you know, the, the numbers are across the, the country. If you do those things in that order, um, it, it very, very high success rates. You know, you look at two other kind of sub-industries that have similar programs, and that's the physicians in particular, and then the airline industry. They boast highest success rates, you know, above 90% uh, because they follow a very strict regimented um, intervention, treatment, and reentry program. And then is it safe to assume that those that are in that phase and their reentry back into work, but they're being drug tested and monitored, there's no they know this is just part of, of the thing. Like if they had a bad attitude, that's when you'd start to worry, right? That oh, they, why are you not willing? Yeah, absolutely. If, if, uh, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a whole process to kind of screen a potential candidate that we, we train the hospital systems in. And that's actually one of them as well. It's that willingness, that willingness. I don't want to drive an hour and a half and take the shifts that nobody wants and works all of the holidays. But you know what? I'm in such a good recovery program and I work through all of those things. I'll take it and I'll be grateful about it as well. So yes, it's the whole attitude. What do you mean I have to drug test again? I just tested and now you're pulling me in again. Uh, that should be a huge red flag. Okay. Okay. 
And um, I had a question and now I forgot. Oh, do most of your healthcare professionals, I could see them wanting to keep it quiet. They don't want anyone to know that they've gone through this. They want a clean slate. Do you have a feel for what percentage of recovering healthcare professionals would be willing to go into a place and be the advocate and the show pony? Sure. You know, and so this information is, of course, anecdotally speaking, um, you know, I can tell you when we're working with up to 1,300 healthcare professionals that come through the program, I'd say at least 15% of the people that we've worked with said, um, hey, I want to be a sponsor. I want to be a state peer representative. I want to come back to Parkdale or I want to come to a treatment center and I want to be able to help. I want to start my own treatment program. So I'd say 15 to 20% on the high end um, have realized that this is part of who they are. Mm-hmm. And they want to share it back openly with somebody else. So then if you look at that 80% of that subset, we're talking about changing the culture, that 80% is the culture of society. Because society is telling them, you cannot be an addiction survivor. You can be a cancer survivor. You can deal with diabetes and you can survive that and hypertension. But keep your mouth quiet about the addiction. Don't say anything. Don't put that scarlet letter because everyone's going to know that and it's going to come with a lot of stereotypes and stigma. So we still have to do better as a society to say mental health, addiction, all of that is a very real disease process and we shouldn't be ashamed to be able to say that. That's the reason why, uh, in my opinion, healthcare providers won't go volunteer to be the show pony because it still has a very negative associated stigma with it. Yeah, well, and just like you and that OR with the missing midazolam, you know, where do the eyes first go? You know, it's like you or it just makes you look weaker than everybody else. You know, that kind of and and the people on the flip side, oh, I would never do that. Right. So there's always this little bit of he's weaker than I am because I would never do that. There's no doubt about it. You know, it's the only, and I want to digress too much, but this is an important concept. And someone had brought this out to me. You know, uh, Rigo, I was thinking, and Addiction is the only disease process known to man that we talk about in the first person. I am an addict. Everything else is I have cancer. I have diabetes. I have hypertension. It's it's something that I'm dealing with that is not, you know, it uh, doesn't define me. It's something that I'm dealing with to get through to save my life. But we still talk about addiction as I am an addict. And that stigma is so interwoven in our psyche. Mm-hmm. It makes it very, very difficult sometimes to break free and say, I'll be the show pony. I'll help usher everybody back into this place. But if you have an institution that's willing to change the culture and uh, not only support that role, but elevate that role, acknowledge that role, uh, identify the importance of that role, I think you'll have more top providers uh, that are in recovery looking to come work for your organization than, than they would even know what to do with. Well, the recovering addict is certainly something to celebrate. I mean, that really is something to celebrate, not to hide under the rug. So, all right, some great, some great things to think about. Okay, thank you very much, Rigo, and um, we'll talk again soon. I'm looking forward to it, Terry. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye bye.